2 Samuel chapter 11. As we are moving through the book of 2 Samuel, the theme is a heart after God, but we're moving into a stage of David's life where his heart is, is certainly not going to be a heart after God. Um, I do probably need to throw out a, a word of caution for tonight. Um, tonight's only part of the story. I mean, technically, our next three or four weeks you know, are going to be part one, two, three, four, or however many weeks we're on this topic, because you need the full story, of course, to get the full picture on these topics. Um, but because there's so many important things to address here, we will probably move through it pretty slowly. Chapter 10 of 2 Samuel ended with the Syrian kingdom, uh, their kingdoms repledging their loyalty to David. All that remains now from the rebellion is dealing with the Ammonites. And when David sends Joab to lead the campaign against Ammon, <laughs> again, instead of going himself, he finds himself in a heap of trouble. And that trouble is caused by a series of degrading decisions, and that's kind of where we're going to be in this process of moving through these next few chapters, these series of degrading decisions. Decisions where God puts plenty of warning signs and speed bumps in front of David so that he would turn around. But because David puts himself in a position that sets himself up for failure, he ignores all those warning signs and speed bumps. And he enters into a sexual affair that will change his life forever. So, Second Samuel chapter 11, we begin in verse 1. And it came to pass, after the year was expired, at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But... David tarried still at Jerusalem. And it came to pass in an evening tide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. And David sent and inquired after the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her, and she came in unto him, and he lay with her, for she was purified from her uncleanness, and she returned unto her house. This moves very rapidly, obviously. Everything's been moving upward for David up to this point, and now all of a sudden, we just jump off this cliff, right? We start here, we didn't start with a cliff, <laughs> right? Like, this, like when we talk about these things, it doesn't start with, you know, God's blessing and, and working in my life, and all of a sudden I go, hey, there's a cliff, you know? There were things that led to this, and even though we only have a few verses, we're going to see the setup for this plunge, this, this dive, this, this you know, uh, belly flop in a sense, you know, spiritually uh, for David in his life. It starts off by telling us, and it came to pass after the year was expired, at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon. The phrase there, after the year was expired, it, it means toward the return of spring. This would be mid to late March. Winter would be the cold and rainy season in that region. I know that's not necessarily us. Our rainy season is in the summer, but uh, although it's always rainy season in Florida. But winter would be the cold and rainy season there in Israel. Not a good time for war, and certainly in particular not a good time for a siege. It mentions this time of mid to late March at the time when kings go forth to battle. If nations were at war, kings would open their campaign that they were planning throughout the winter. They would usually open it in spring. In fact, the month of March is named after Mars, the Roman god of war. And so it tells us in that time, they had been planning the campaign against Ammon all throughout the winter, spring comes that David sends Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. Just like last time, when the problem came up with the Ammonites, David did not go himself. He sends Joab, and, and of course, remember, Joab's armies get surrounded. They're in a bit of a bind, and, they, you know, and Joab comes up with this plan, and, and they, they end up you know, uh, dividing their forces to defeat the multiple enemies that are coming at them. It says he sent Joab. He also this time, though, sends his servants. He would be all of his military officers, his highest 
you know, brightest minds, and then all Israel. So it's not just part of the Israeli army, but the full might of the Israeli army. So it is a little bit different this time, but David himself does not go. Now, David certainly didn't lead every military mission that happened in Israel, but I'm not sure why. Honestly, I don't know. When you look at the Scripture, it doesn't give us any indication of why. I don't know why David had this aversion to leading the army against the Ammonites. When they fought against the rebellion up north, he led them there. Every other time we see them out fighting, David's leading them. This is the only time, for whatever reason, with the Ammonites that David just doesn't go out. Perhaps he saw it as a a small thing, not requiring his physical presence to lead. I don't know. Whatever his reasoning, David, we do see, though, has gotten out of the habit of seeking the Lord about Israel's battles. When we start off his invasion uh, of the Philistines' land, he goes to the Lord about every single fight. It doesn't tell us he didn't, but it also doesn't tell us he did. So it seems that David has gotten out of the habit of seeking the Lord about these battles when he first became the king. And I truly believe that if David had sought the Lord about where he was supposed to be during this campaign, he would have never had opportunity to find himself in this tempting situation, which brings up a very important truth. Frequently in temptation, especially when dealing with sexual temptation, Christians will trick themselves into thinking, well, I should be able to handle this. I should be able to beat this. You know, next time will be different. And yet Paul consistently gave a very different command when it came to sexual sin. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, a really simple command from Paul. Flee fornication. Flee sexual morality. Flee sexual sin, all right? Like in in many things in life, you know, when the enemy comes up, you got to stand your ground, you got to get ready to fight. With sexual temptation, Paul says, do not do that. He says, run. I love what Pastor Gibbs said once in one of his sermons. He said the word for flee is fugo, and that's because it means fool, go. (laughs) What are you hanging around for? In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, Paul tells Timothy, flee youthful lusts. Stay away. And if it catches you off guard, then run away from the temptation. And, and look, let's actually look at 2 Timothy 2, 22, because it tells us where to go to. This is the part that a lot of times you may not hear about. So, oh, yeah, I know I'm supposed to flee sexual temptation. Yes, but you're supposed to run somewhere, not just haphazardly anywhere. 2 Timothy 2.22, flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, charity, peace. Now, those sound like good things, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. I'm not, instead of focusing on, you know, the, these immoral things, I should be pursuing these things. Yes, but there's more with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. In other words, when you're in this situation, you're not supposed to tackle it by yourself. If you're going to attempt to tackle this by yourself, you're going to fail. Stay away, or if it catches you off guard, run away from the temptation and surround yourself with those who have pure hearts. That's what it says, right? Surround yourself with those who have pure hearts. Defeating sexual temptation is mostly about setting yourself up for success. Now, are you going to sometimes find yourself in a Joseph and a uh, Joseph and a Potter? I've combined Joseph and Potiphar. Joseph and a Potiphar's wife type of situation. Are you going? Is that going to happen sometimes? Sure, you know. You know, there are times, you know, I don't watch much football these days, but in the past when I would watch it, you know, when you'd be there and all of a sudden the commercial comes on and you're like, oh, let's go look at the game on the other channel, right? I mean, sometimes you're not looking for it and boom, it's just there. But even though that happens, most victories will be found by not being there, (laughs) by just not being there. And when they do arise, by immediately getting away from the source of temptation and surrounding yourself with those who have pure hearts so that it 
It, it, it gets you out of that mode. Now, I'm going to get a little personal here. So, if this offends you, tough. That means surrounding yourself with television and movie industry people is the exact opposite of surrounding yourself with those who have pure hearts. If, if you spend lots of time either watching movies or watching TV and you've got a problem with sexual morality, whether it's you know, pornography, you know, adultery, you know, flirtations, inordinate affection, whatever. If, if these are issues that you have and, and that's a regular part of your diet, then you need to eliminate that from your diet. They do not have pure hearts in that ind- those industries. Did you know that since 2018, HBO requires intimacy coordinators to monitor the sets of its programs to ensure that sexual abuse doesn't happen when filming nude or simulated sex scenes? That the television industry and movie industry requires such things tells you just how off the deep end they are. We don't put, provide monitors for sexual predators. We put them in prison. The whole industry is filled with this glut of sexual desire and sexual sin. We don't assign mediators or coordinators to ensure that abuse doesn't happen. We put people like that away so they can't do it anymore. But you see, those industries aren't interested in purity or safety. They are cesspools of perversion. You can't have purity when you call sexual sin entertainment. So when these individuals, whether they're a filmmaker or an actor, become what you surround yourself with, how do you expect to escape unscathed? Proverbs says, can a man take fire into his bosom? And obviously the same is true for a woman. Can a woman take fire into her bosom and not be burned? The answer is no. Well, at this point, even though David's probably, his first mistake is if he sought the Lord, the Lord probably would have told him, fool, go. But things seem to go well at first. It says here in verse 1, that they, the army that David sends, destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. Uh, the word destroyed means to bring ruin upon. Uh, Second Chronicles 20 verse 1, which is kind of a, uh, uh, the same, telling the same story but with a different angle, uh, a different writer, so giving some other thoughts. He says they, what they were destroying was not the people but the countryside of the children of Ammon. They were just taking city after city after city after city. And their campaign plan was that, to wreck everything on their path to the capital city of Rabbah, and they were successful in that. Now, if David saw that the campaign against the Ammonites was something that didn't require his attention, the siege of Rabbah would be. And yet it mentions, but David's tarried still in Jerusalem. It gives us kind of an indicator here that, why are you still here? You're not supposed to still be here, and yet David is still tarrying in Jerusalem. In, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 27 and 28, we'll get to that in a little bit, after Joab captures the city, he actually doesn't take the army inside the city because David needs to be the one who takes the city so people don't start looking to Joab. And so he sends a letter to David, and he says, David, the city's captured. You need to get here lest people think I took the city, and they start looking to me. You're the king. You've been waiting too long. Now you got to come. So this is something that, that the Scriptures tell us. He should not have been where he was. And yet for some reason, David still remains in Jerusalem. You know, it's interesting. The Bible tells us that the reason Israel wanted, one reason Israel wanted a king is because they wanted someone consistently to lead them into war. It says in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 20, you know, we want a king who will go out before us in war and lead us out and bring us back home. And so, why was David so determined not to fulfill that role on this occasion? Again, the Bible doesn't tell us. We just don't know. But it does tell us that David's refusal to be out with his men, to choose a life of ease over sacrifice for whatever reason, that's when things took a bad turn. Look at verse 2. And it came to pass in an evening tide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. 
And from the roof, he saw a woman washing herself. The evening tide, late afternoon, it's toward the time of the evening. It's not night yet. He wouldn't be able to see very well if it was night. But it's late afternoon. The sun is just beginning to start to come down. Uh, Israel, the reason he's on his bed in the afternoon is the lazy king. No. Israel, they had something similar to a siesta time right at about noon because of the extreme heat. This is probably about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, maybe 4 o'clock. And so David, he gets up. He's, you know, taking a siesta, and then he gets up, and it tells us he's walking upon the roof of the king's house. And that word walked, it literally means he was pacing back and forth. David's palace had a large roof that overlooked everything in the city, and David's not just out trying to be a peeping Tom, okay? The roof was the place of leisure in, in, uh, in Israel's homes, you know? So the place of leisure for David and his palace was up on a very large roof. It's kind of the equivalent of the living room with the TV set, you know, and the, the, the comfortable couches and stuff like that. I mean, this is something you'll see consistently throughout Scripture of why they're on the roof. It's a place of relaxation. David is trying to relax, He's trying to relax. He's trying to enjoy the fact that he's not on the front lines. He's not out there sleeping in a tent every night. And yet, he's pacing back and forth on his roof. He can't. He can't. (laughs) Almost all my kids, almost all of them, when they were little, they would come to me or Bev at one point in time and say, I don't don't hear God talk to me. You guys talk about God talking to you, and I, I don't ever hear God talk to me. To which either me or my wife responded always with the same answer, do you hear a little voice inside your head or in your heart ever telling you not to do something wrong when you're thinking about doing something wrong? Yeah, that's God talking to you. And it doesn't change when we grow up. <laughs> it doesn't change when we grow up. That's what David's experiencing right now. He's trying to take a nap. He can't. He comes up on the roof to relax. He can't. He's pacing back and forth. He's restless because the Lord is saying, Danger, David. Eject, eject, get out. Get out of the situation. But David doesn't flee. He ignores the warning in his heart and he lands smack dab in the middle of temptation. And from the roof, he saw a woman washing herself, literally in the act of bathing. Now, it was customary in the Middle East for a home to have an uncovered courtyard, sometimes in the center, sometimes kind of in a U-shape in the, in the front of the home. Um, but either way, it would usually have an uncovered open out, outside, therefore, courtyard with a well. And, and, and the well there, that was considered, that area was considered private because you can only see it from a neighboring roof. Because of that, people refrained from looking down from their roof into your neighbor's courtyard. It was just something you didn't do. Because bathing, cooking, and other activities that required access to water were often done out there as just normal activities. I bring all this up to say two things. Number one, Bathsheba's not trying to catch David or any other guy's eye. You know, it's not like she, you know, puts the, you know, little needle on the record player and, you know, and some sultry music starts playing, you know, and she, you know, gets the soap going and then, whoa, whoa, you know. That's not Bathsheba here, okay? On the same token, David's not a peeping Tom hiding on a roof, okay? He's not looking for anything. And yet, while those two things are true, David knew that the right thing to do when something catches your eye is to turn away. When he noticed her, he knows he's supposed to turn away, but he doesn't. Now, the King James is very misleading here. It says, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. It's not like David's out on the roof and he's like, ooh, look, there's a woman bathing. She's not attractive. Oh, there's, you know, you know th- this is not what's going on here. The, in fact, the phrase she was very beautiful to look upon is a very poor translation. It just means she was very pleasing and very desirable in his eyes. In other words, it has nothing to do with Bathsheba. It has everything to do with David. You see, instead of turning away, David begins to feast on what he sees. He begins to drink it in. James chapter 1 describes this, this, um, the, these, this kind of a, a process, this downgrade of temptation. In James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, James explains. <clears throat> James 1, verse 14. 
There's more to the picture here, but I just want to highlight the process. But every man, verse 14, James 1, is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then, when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it is uh, finished, in other words, when it has, has come to full growth, it brings forth death. And so, we see this process here. Every man is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desire, right? This is not on Bathsheba. This is on David. David had desire. He wanted something that was not okay to want. And then he became enticed, entrapped by that desire. That desire took hold. The idea, where I mentioned, the way you mostly stay out of sexual sin is just by not putting yourself in the position. Because what happens when you start drinking it in, when you have desire, is that there are chemicals that start working in your, in your body. And now you're not just fighting intellectually, you're fighting something physical. And if you allow yourself to be entrapped, enticed, well, when you act upon that lust, you, now you've sinned. And if you allow sin to become full-grown, things start to die around you. Yes, David shouldn't have been in this spot, but once he realized the situation, he should have fled. I ask you a question because I know and many folks I've talked to that it's true. How many times have we sought relaxation or rest in the living room or a bedroom, flipping through channels or scouring the internet or social media, restless because nothing we find in our search is scratching whatever itch we have? That may be innocent at heart, but God makes us restless because He doesn't want us doing that. You know, if, if you're constantly looking for something to satisfy, guess what's going to happen? Someone's going to step in to provide the material to satisfy. And those environments are not necessarily screaming Jesus at you. They're screaming a lot of other things. In those moments when we are experiencing restlessness, and I know it's hard, Sometimes you just want to chill. You just want to sit down. You just want to relax. But in those moments when you're seeking out that and you're restless, that's the Lord telling you, I want you to deny yourself right now and do something of value. You know, there are times in my life when I've come to the Lord, I'm like, Lord, you know, you know I don't even know what to do with my time right now. And I have, I have no conviction whatsoever about just chilling out. I'm not saying, you know, it's like 24-7, you got to go, go, go. You know, if you're not thinking about Jesus 24-7, you're in sin. That's not my point. There are times the Lord is fine with us relaxing. You know, I remember I used to feel guilty for, you know, going out with my family and just having a time of fun or whatever. The Lord, our resources could be used elsewhere. My time could be used better. You know, the Lord's like, really? You could spend time better than spending it with your family, laughing and enjoying one another's company, you know, having good conversations with your kids, with your bride? Oh, yeah, I guess you're right. But in those moments when you're on your own and you're restless, <laughs> that's God telling you, danger. I want you to deny yourself right now, and I want you to do something of value. Now, again, there we are. We're not, we're not listening to that. We ignore that. And then what usually happens? Bam. Ooh, what's that? And all of a sudden, we find ourselves confronted with something that begins to irresistibly tug at us. And when you and I let it get to that point, it is very difficult to put everything into reverse and flee. And so because David doesn't run, he ends up taking the leap from lust to sin. Look at verse 3. And David sent and inquired after the woman. In David's inflamed lust, he now begins to pull other people onto the roof to ask if any of them know who she is. Can you imagine how horrid that is? I mean, you're up on your roof, you know, and you, you see this lady bathing. You're not supposed to be looking, but now you're not just looking, you're drinking it in, and then, you know, you're calling a couple servants up and you go, anybody know that gal? Now you brought other people into this. 
That's how inflamed David is in his lust at this point. And that's why it's so dangerous to let it get to this point. Because you're not thinking correctly at that point. All the normal stoppers that are in mind that would normally keep you from doing something are gone. All of the the speed bumps and the bob barricades and the warning signs that are in front of you, you've already bypassed them all. All that's left is the, the big maw of the cliff. And you're going 90 miles an hour towards it. And one of them said, lit, one is not in the original text, so I don't, we don't know if multiple people said this or whatever, but somehow someone says to David, or they say to David, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? Again, I don't know if that's the best translation because is not this literally reads, don't you recognize her, David? David, that's the that's wife of, of one of your best soldiers. That's the the daughter of one of your best soldiers. That's the granddaughter of your chief advisor. Don't you recognize Bathsheba, David? Eliam is listed in 2 Samuel 23-34 as a member of David's elite forces. He had a group of 37 men that were his most loyal and most trusted soldiers, many of them who had been with him since the cave in Adullam. These are men he's known for decades David's mighty men is what the Scripture calls them. Eliam himself is the son of Ahithophel, one of David's most trusted advisors, who, by the way, Ahithophel is the one who helps Absalom bring a rebellion against David. I wonder why. Uriah, 2 Samuel 23, 39, another of David's mighty men. He's a Hittite, a Gentile, and yet he's a Gentile with a name that means light of Jehovah. I can promise you that was not his given name. He's a Canaanite, someone that was under the ban, someone that God told Israel to wipe out, and yet, like Rahab, was spared because he put his faith in the Lord. And not just spared, but used mightily by God as one of David's most elite fighting soldiers, one of his closest friends. For David to act on these lusts, he has to perform five betrayals. First, against the Lord. In Numbers 15, 37 through 41, It says, And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and bid them that they make them fringes in the borders of their garments throughout their generations. And they put upon the fringe of the borders a ribbon of blue, and it shall be unto you for a fringe that you may look upon it. And remember all the commandments of the Lord, and do them, and that you seek not after your own heart and your own eyes after which you used to go a-whoring that you may remember and do all my commandments and be holy unto your God. I am the Lord your God which brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. You know, I just celebrated my 25th anniversary and my wife got me this. So now I've got two reminders. (laughs) This ring however, is not just a reminder of my promise to her. It's a reminder of my promise to him that I would give myself to her and her only until death should separate us so the Lord Jesus should come back. David, he's a Jew. He wears the shawl with the tassels, with the blue ribbon, very likely wearing it at this moment. And he's supposed to look down, and all those little knots that they make, the tassels they're called, they're representative of God's commands. David has to look at those and go, I don't care. His first betrayal has to be against the Lord. His second betrayal is against Bathsheba. 
Bathsheba is a fellow believer and a married woman, and he betrays her by causing her to sin. That's exactly how Leviticus 20 verse 10 describes the situation. And the man that commits adultery with another man's wife, even he that commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. David betrays Bathsheba. His third and fourth betrayals are against Bathsheba's father and Bathsheba's grandfather, two men who trusted David. Eliam is very much likely out on the battlefield right now. Two men who were loyal to David. David will write a psalm about how deeply Ahithophel's betrayal will hurt him because he said, you are my trusted advisor, my, one of my closest friends. <laughs> yes, David, but he's not the only one to betray in the relationship. Fifthly and finally, of course, David betrays Uriah, the man who had committed his life to Bathsheba and who fought to protect her and the rest of his nation from harm in loyalty to country and to his king, David. The answer David receives from whoever tells him, don't you recognize Bathsheba, and tells David who she's associated with, reminds David, the answer that David receives contains five speed bumps that God puts in front of David to keep him from acting on the rising lusts in his heart. Five reasons to back out. Number one, I can't do this to the Lord. Adultery is wrong. Number two, she's a married woman. Treating a fellow Israeli as an object for my pleasure is wickedness. Number three, I can't do this to my friends and betray them. That would be selfish. Number four, I can't do this to a family who trusts me to look out for them before I look out for myself. This would be an abuse of my authority. And number five, these men stood by me when Saul hunted me down. They risked their lives for me over and over so we could all someday find a home and do things the right way in Israel. This would be ungrateful. There are so many stop signs and barricades that David has to ignore in his own heart to get to verse 4. And may I say to you, this is why sexual sin is so destructive, because it is riddled with selfishness. People say that Christians are obsessed with sex, that we're prudes. That's not it at all. We just understand sex power in a person's, uh, sex is power in a person's life, for good or evil. And while sin is sin, the Bible says that sexual sin is unique in the devastation it causes. Look at 1 Corinthians 6 with me. 1 Corinthians 6. First Corinthians 6, verses 18 through 20. We mentioned it earlier. Flee fornication. Flee sexual sin. Why? Every, man, every sin that a man does, verse 18 says, is without the body. The word there means independent of the body. But in contrast, sexual sin, he that commits fornication sins against his own body. Paul doesn't mean that our body receives the sin. That's not what he's saying. Every, you know, when you do this, your body receives the sin. <laughs> there are plenty of other sins that my body can receive, gluttony, drug abuse. All those things affect our bodies. But what Paul is saying is that my body becomes the instrument of sin. You see, in the sexual act, I give a part of myself away. You give a part of yourself away. Now, that's beautiful when it's between married couples who treat one another with dignity and with kindness. It's beautiful. 
There's a, 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 an even deeper oneness that's created, a, a deeper bond, a, a holy bond that's created when that's the case. But that reality of giving a part of yourself away is horrible when it's done outside those boundaries. It ends up creating an unholy bond, one that is very difficult to break, one where I end up losing a piece or pieces of myself to someone who will not care for that piece but will use it up whenever they want. This is, by the way, why Paul talks about sexual kindness between married couples in 1 Corinthians 6, 3 through 5. He says, render unto the, you know, husband, render unto the wife, do benevolence. The word benevolence there means kindness. Kindness. You know, if you're married today, the, the and I don't want to get too detailed, but your, your sexual relationship, your intimate relationship should be, the top label on top of it is nice. Like, I'm nice to that person. I'm kind to that person. It's selfless, not selfish. Husbands, do that for your wives. Wives, do that for your husbands. Consider one another that you don't separate, you know, for long periods of time unless it's for fasting and prayer because you don't want to tempt each other. You don't want to discourage each other. You don't want this to become a a place where walls are built up in your relationship. It's, It's a sensitive place. It should be dealt with with kindness. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, we see God's design for sex. You see, in Hebrews 13, 4, it says the marriage bed is, undefi- is honorable in all. I'm sorry, marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled, but King James says whoremongers. You've got to have a King James Bible so you can have that word. Just the sexually immoral and adulterers, God will judge. This is God's design for sex. Powerful, beautiful, pure, tender. Now, when we examine David's life. Unfortunately, David's already crossed all of God's boundaries there by taking multiple wives, right? I mean, he's already, he's already thrown out the, the trust that's supposed to be there in the intimate relationship of a husband and a wife. He's already thrown out the idea of, of uh, the marriage bed being undefiled. And so when you keep giving pieces of yourself away like this, it warps your thinking to the point that you seek to satisfy your lust no matter what the boundaries are or who it hurts. And so in verse 4, David takes something that isn't his. And David sent messengers and took her. Now, we can see that and go, wow, that sounds violent. There is no violence in this word. There's no force actually in this word. Of this, all language experts agree. In fact, that it says she came later on in the verse makes it clear that she came of her own free will. She was not taken against her free will. And yet, and yet, by sending for her, David took something that wasn't his. I love what the expositor's commentary, it says, master of everything he surveys, David has everything, and yet he does not have enough. He doesn't have enough. David, who wouldn't put himself on the throne by taking Saul's life, even when his own life was at risk, seizes woman after woman after woman to slake his lust, and now he finally takes one who belongs to someone else. That, that is the deception of sexual sin. It claims you will find satisfaction But as a famous musician said, you never find satisfaction. You don't. You always need more. Proverbs 6, 32 and 33, it says, But whosoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He that does it destroys his own soul. A wound and a dishonor shall he get, and his reproach shall not be wiped away. Adultery leaves a stain on your soul, one that only the blood of Jesus can wash away. But even then, it is hard because even though the Lord forgives and the Lord can restore, everyone affected by an affair remembers. And the enemy is quick to bring reminders. Whether it's of your own failure or it's someone else you hurt through your failure. And that is why the person 
who does this, Proverbs says, lacks understanding. They aren't thinking about the long-term consequences of such behavior. It's why most affairs, when it finally comes out, they, instead of turning the person around, it tends to just send them further off the deep end. Because facing the reality of what you did is almost too painful. So better to just keep doing what you're doing, to keep seeking to satisfy the urge than actually face reality, that I'm going to have to live with this for the rest of my life. And so, David takes something that isn't his, and then David and Bathsheba agree to have an affair. In verse 4, it says, and she came in. The language came in. It's really hard, again, to translate this into English because it carries the image of motion toward David. The image here is not of a woman who is frightened, a woman who is intimidated. It's not an image of a woman who uh, feels pressure. It's not an image of any of these things. It's an image of a willing, forward motion toward David. The language contains no indication of resistance from Bathsheba. Now, of course, you know, just like with David, like, why are you not going out and fighting against the Ammonites? We kind of wonder here, Bathsheba, why, why are you not, why are you engaging in this? David's, I mean, he's wronged you all sorts of ways already, even just inviting you up to the palace. Why are you engaging in this? All sorts of motives have been postulated for, for her. Vanity, that, oh, the king's got his eyes on me. Lust for power, the position that she could have if she was attached to the king. Physical attraction. I mean, all these things are there. Some even postulate based on 1 Kings 1.17 when she comes in and says, David, you made an agreement that, that my son Solomon would be the, your, your heir. You'd be your successor. Some postulate that she agreed to the affair with an agreement that if she got pregnant, the child would become David's successor. <laughs> Truth is, we can speculate all we want, but the Bible is silent on why she entered into this affair with David. doesn't tell us. We don't know. Now, because we don't know, this has led some to go the opposite direction and absolve Bathsheba of any wrongdoing. What could she do? David was the most powerful man in Israel. Resistance was impossible. <laughs> and yet... The Bible speaks very clearly when instances of rape or abuse of authority and pressure are involved in situations like this, and none of that language is used here. You need to remember this. Yes, a common woman, those things might have fit the bill, but Bathsheba is the wife of a high-ranking military man with multiple family ties to powerful men in David's government. She was not powerless like most women in Israeli society would have been. And so, the Scriptures need to be taken at face value. David invites her into an affair, and she accepts the invitation. And so the Scripture says, and he lay with her, for she was purified from her uncleanness. The story spares us the awful details and just says it happened, and the reason that they were able to act on the wishes for an affair is because she had just been cleared from her time of uncleanness from her monthly cycle, which, of course, also put her at the time of ovulation. But that's a topic for next Sunday, part two. Now, David and Bathsheba's son Solomon, he would later write, Proverbs 5, what we read in our scripture reading. So let's just return there. And I know I'm out of time, but I kind of want to finish this up. So if you'll indulge me. In Proverbs 5.15, Solomon writes, drink waters out of your own cistern, and running waters out of your own well. Yeah, obviously, he's making a, an allusion here, an illustration to the intimate relationship. You know, you've, you've got your own well already. Why are you, why are you looking to drink from other wells? Verse sixteen. The old King James reads it like, "Do this." But the New King James that I read with the Scripture reading makes it sound a little better. Old King James says, let your fountains be dispersed abroad. But the idea is, should you let your fountains be dispersed abroad? And should, you, should your rivers just be flowing in the streets? 
<laughs> a little bit pictorial language there, but that's the idea. No, they should not be. Let them be only, uh, be only thine own and not strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed. In other words, God wants to bless your well. He wants to, to bless what, what, what you engage in in this area of your life. And how you do that? By rejoicing with the wife of your youth. And then it gives details of what that looks like that I won't go into. And then it gives a warning. Verse 20, why will you, my son, be ravished with a strange woman and embrace the bosom of a, of a stranger, someone who's not your spouse? Listen, David didn't have these words, but he had the commands of God. He had lots of speed bumps from God. We don't have that excuse, though. We have all these words. We have access to all these truths. And so I say this to you tonight. If you are flirting with someone who is not your spouse, if you are involved in an affair, if you are fantasizing adultery, if you're watching or reading entertainment about those who commit adultery, stop. God sees it tells us here that, you know, the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord. He ponders all his goings. God sees. You know, I've heard people say, you know, when you go and you go and do something that is involved in sexual sin, you leave Jesus behind. No, you don't. You drag him through it with you. Nowhere in the Bible does it say you leave Jesus behind. He sees, it says here. God saw every moment of David and Bathsheba's affair that the Scripture mercifully leaves out for us every painful moment that it broke his heart. And if the fact that God sees isn't enough to grab hold of your heart, those sins, it tells us they're a snare. It says, his own iniquity shall take the wicked himself. He shall be held with the cords of his sin. They're a trap that leads to destroying everything you've built. If you are messing around in these areas, you will go off the path. You will end up making foolish decisions. Because when you give yourself to sexual sin, you're never the one in control. Because you're the one who's giving away the most valuable thing you have in every transaction, a piece of yourself. You can't be in control when that's the case. It is no coincidence, and I'll leave you with this, that Jesus uses serious language right after he talks about adultery. Whosoever looks upon a woman lust in his heart has committed adultery in his heart already. And then what does Jesus say? If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. What's Jesus saying? We should all be walking around eyeless and handless? No. What Jesus is saying is take sexual sin seriously. You know, I've said this before, but one of my favorite illustrations of how you deal with sexual sin in your life is the movie scene from uh, Fireproof, where you know, Kirk Cameron, the, the, the actor the, who plays the lead, he's got a pornography problem, and he's it's up there in front of him. He's trying to start walking with the Lord, you know, and, and he's got this temptation that pops up in front of him on the screen, and what does he do? He clicks. And of course, as soon as he clicks... And, and, and the guilt hits him. He goes and he starts reading the book that his dad gave him. And his dad talks about how when temptation comes, you know, there's only one way to deal with it. You've got to eradicate it. And he takes the computer monitor out and he takes a baseball bat to it. <laughs> That's what Jesus means when he says, if your right eye causes you to sin like this, cut it off. Pluck it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. There is only one way to deal with sexual sin and it is extreme prejudice. Because if you don't, you can never recreate and renew the mind so you can start thinking correctly about God's creation. That that person that you're looking at or flirting with or having the affair with is someone he made. It's someone's son, it's someone's daughter, it's someone's husband, it's someone's wife, it's someone's dad, it's someone's mom, it's someone that God created. They are not an object for your use or my use. I said this is part one because I realize this is a heavy message and probably leaves many of you feeling condemned tonight. Understand there's more to the story and we will get to that. If you're involved in these things, I didn't say these things to condemn you. I said them to challenge you. 
And I said them so that you'll run to the Savior who can rescue us from these things. So if you're struggling with sexual sin, and my best guess is that many of us are because of what the numbers say. If you are, come boldly before his throne of grace. Find the help, the grace, and the mercy that you need from your great high priest who knows what it's like to be tempted and yet never gave in to it. He can help you overcome. So let's all stand. Lord, we thank you that you are honest with us about the dangers of sexual sin. We thank you for the challenges, the correction, the rebuke, the very um, wounding words, Lord, that you have for us about it because faithful are the wounds of a friend. You love us so much that you warn us of this and you correct us when we go astray. You bring these things to our attention. So, Lord, for anyone who might be struggling tonight, or maybe they've just got something going on where they've not dealt with it the way they should, or, Lord, maybe someone is in the full-blown just disobedience in this area. Lord, as you're reaching out to them, I pray that you would draw them with bands of loving kindness, Lord, that you're not condemning them, but you're calling them to repentance. And, Lord, that as those folks are in their hearts coming to you, whether you wash them clean and you show them the way out. Show them, Lord, where they put themselves in positions where they can't succeed. Show them the things they need to change in their life so they can remove themselves from that place. Show them the areas where things need to be plucked out or cut off. And then, Lord, give them the courage and the fortitude to do what's necessary that you might begin to renew their mind through a true perspective on sexuality. Lord, we all need that desperately because, Lord, everywhere, it's all around us and it's off. Fill us with your spirit, we pray. Rescue us, Lord, from this devastating sin. In Jesus' name we ask, amen.